This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Robert Rapino, author of the science fiction novel Mort, which has been described by Library Journal as Animal Farm set in a post-apocalyptic world based on interspecies rivalry rather than communism. Learn more at robertrapino.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 229 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing unusual monsters in horror, the kind of monsters that make you say, what the bleep is that? And also discussing the new book, What the Bleep is That? The Saga Anthology of the Monstrous and Macabre. And I'm joined by four guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and also the editor of John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's edited more than 30 anthologies, including the recent books The End Has Come, Loosed Upon the World, and Operation Arcana, and he's also the co-editor of What the Bleep Is That? So John, welcome back. Bleeping good to be here. <laughs> then next up, we've got Douglas Cohen, making his ninth appearance on the show. Together with John, he co-edited the anthology Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond, and he's also the author of Realms of Fantasy, A Retrospective, which collects detailed blog posts about every issue of Realms of Fantasy magazine, where he worked for six and a half years. His short fiction appears in or is forthcoming in magazines such as Inner Zone, Weird Tales, and Space and Time, and he's also the co-editor of What the Bleep Is That? So Doug, welcome to the show. Bleeping good to be back, Dave. <laughs> And also joining us today is John Langan, making his sixth appearance on the show. He's the author of the novels House of Windows and The Fisherman, and the short story collections Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, and The Wide Carnivorous Sky and Other Monstrous Geographies. Together with Paul Tremblay, he edited the anthology Creatures, 30 Years of Monsters, and his story What is Lost, What is Given Away appears in What the Bleep is That? So John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dave. It's great to be here. And also joining us today is Desirina Boscovich. Her short fiction appears in magazines such as Clark's World, Lightspeed, and the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, and in books such as Tomorrow's Cthulhu and the Apocalypse Triptych. She's the editor of It Came from the North, an anthology of Finnish speculative fiction, and together with Jeff Vandermeer, she edited the Steampunk User's Manual. Her debut novella, Never Now Always, will be out this winter from Broken Eye Books, and her story Down in the Deep in the Dark appears in What the Bleep is That? So, Des, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And today's show is brought to you by Robert Rapino, author of the Red Sphinx series. The first book in the series, Mort, was listed by io9 as one of the very best science fiction and fantasy books of 2015, and also received a starred review from Publishers Weekly. And here's a description of the book. It says, The war with no name has begun, with human extinction as its goal. The instigator of this war is the colony a race of intelligent ants who for thousands of years have been silently building an army that would forever eradicate the destructive, oppressive humans. The final step in the colony's war effort is transforming the surface animals into high-functioning two-legged beings who rise up to kill their masters. Former house cat-turned-war hero Mort is famous for taking on the most dangerous missions and fighting the dreaded human bioweapon Emsaw, but the true motivation behind his recklessness is his ongoing search for a pre-transformation friend, a dog named Sheba. When Mort receives a mysterious message from the dwindling human resistance claiming Sheba is alive, he begins a journey that will take him from the remaining human strongholds to the heart of the colony, where he will discover the source of Emsaw and the ultimate fate of all of Earth's creatures. 
The book has been praised by writers such as Kat Rambo and Daniel H. Wilson, who have both appeared on this podcast, and Kirkus Reviews writes, Devilishly entertaining. A wild riff on interspecies warfare sure to make pet owners think twice the next time their tabby cat darts by. Imagine W. Bruce Cameron's silly and maudlin A Dog's Purpose recast as a violent and frightening post-apocalyptic global battle for the souls of Earth's survivors, layered with a messiah prophecy that makes the Matrix look simplistic by comparison. So again, the book is called Mort by Robert Rapino, and you should also keep an eye out for the sequel Dark, that's D-apostrophe-A-R-C, as well as a new novella called Catapult, which is set in the same world. And again, you can learn more about the series over at robertrapino.com. And now let's get to our panel. Okay, so we're going to start out by talking about this new anthology, What the Bleep is That? So Doug, tell us a bit about how this book came about. Okay. Um, well, I guess the first thing that we should say is the title of the book is not actually What the Bleep is That? Instead, it's What the... And then you have some symbols that you might see like in comic strips when characters are cursing. Uh, in in the bub in the the dialogue bubbles, you'll see those various symbols, and as we learn, those are called grawlics. So the actual title of the book is "What Then?" You see these grawlics for a swear. Is that obviously it's just easier to say what the bleep is that, but technically that's the title. And the way it came about is originally this was uh, the. There was a book back in 2007. I think it was called The Collected Stories or The Collected Tales of H.P. Lovecraft. I think it was put out by Harper Perennial Modern Classics. And, you know, uh, just reprinting stories by H.P. Lovecraft. And there was some cover art by Mike Mignola. Uh, Some people might be familiar with him. He created Hellboy. And I didn't know any of this at the time. And... You know, someone, at some later point in time, they took the cover, and they stripped away all the design elements, and they redid the cover. And for the title, they put, what the fuck is that? And, you know, on the cover, Mike Mignola had done an illustration of Cthulhu, which is this tentacle monster, as many of your listeners may know, uh, H.P. Lovecraft's most famous creation. And, you know, like, Stephen King originally had, like, uh, a quote on the cover calling Lovecraft the greatest practitioner of horror in the 20th century. So now there was a fake quote on it where Stephen King was saying, I don't know what the fuck is going on. And so on, (laughs) you know, it's just all these little things. And I saw it. I had a good laugh. And at the time, I had no idea it was based on a real cover. Now, you know, time goes by and people kept sharing this meme online, whether it was on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, whatever. And it kept popping up again and again, and every so often I would see it. Then one day, you know, I'm on Facebook, and someone posts it, and they comment, oh, this would be the greatest poster. And I said, forget that. Instead, make it a horror anthology. 20 stories, and in every story, one character is guaranteed to use that phrase. And I just said that as a joke. But, you know, in the comment section, people were really enthusiastic and they were really responsive to that idea. And I was like, oh, wow, I think I just stumbled onto an idea for a horror anthology. So I went through like a lot of evolution from that point on. There was I had a different co-editor for a time. Uh, Originally, it was going to be a Kickstarter. 
Uh, we're going to fast forward to eventually my co-editor had to move on. Uh, she was just too swamped with other projects. And I wanted another person on board familiar with Kickstarter, like my original co-editor was, because I thought that would behoove the project since I had no experience with that. So I contacted John. We had worked together before in Osri Imagined. Uh, we start going back and forth. We start talking about the title. Uh, and, you know, John is like, well, you know, maybe we can change the title to uh, what the F, and he said the symbols is that, you know, like the other symbols. So you would just see the F and then the other Grolics. Because uh, at the time, we weren't sure, do we really want that as the title for the book? One of our contributors also expressed concerns because uh, he was a YA author. He's like, I don't know if I really want to be involved with the book with this title, which is an understandable concern. So I heard John's suggestion where we just take the F and then you have the symbols. And I thought it was a great suggestion, except I completely misunderstood him. And I thought he said, what if we just make it all symbols? So then we decided we wanted to go in that direction because that misunderstanding was actually a cool idea. And now all of a sudden, we didn't have to use one specific word in the phrase. Like, it didn't have to be, what the fuck is that, like it originally was. Instead, it could be, what the hell is that? What the heck is that? Um, I think Desirina had an interesting one where it was <laughs> like, what the, I'm paraphrasing, it was like, what the Christ on a cracker is that? You know, it's just whatever word or words the authors now wanted to use in place of those symbols was fair game. And I guess the icing on the cake, we ended up selling this to uh, Saga Press of Simon & Schuster instead of going with Kickstarter. And the in-house editor, Joe Monti, actually had a line for a connection to get us Mike Mignola to do an original cover illustration to this new book. So in a way, it feels like it came full circle. It went from a reprint of stories with an original cover by Mike Mignola to becoming an online meme to now becoming a, another book, this time an anthology of full of original horror stories with a new cover illustration by Mike Mignola. <laughs> and so, John, do you want to add anything to, to, to was Doug lying about any of that or do you want to mm -hmm. uh, embellish that at all? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I just was going to say, uh, listeners might be, uh, surprised to find out how many books actually start with a joke like that, where somebody just makes some comment that they think is just a joke and it's like, oh, haha, ha, how about we have an anthology on this subject? But there's like so many books that actually arise out of that kind of, uh, scenario. Not just anthologies either, like novels, like somebody just throws out some ridiculous thing that they think is silly and then it turns out they write a book about it, you know? Um, but in, in this case, uh, one of the other things that, uh, changed once I came on board, um, besides the title, uh, originally Doug, um, had been planning on it being, um, an entirely Lovecraftian anthology. So all of the stories would have been, you know, riffing on, you know, a Lovecraftian mythos in some way. Um, and so I had suggested, uh, well, what if we just open it up? Uh, so let the author, like, let the authors do a Lovecraftian thing if they want to, but then also let them do whatever they want otherwise. So, uh, that way we didn't, we didn't have everybody, uh, sort of locked in to just doing something Lovecraftian. Um, so, I mean, so otherwise, yeah, I mean, Doug gave all the details otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's how it sort of evolved. And, and I think that was, uh, the title and, uh, and, and the, the broadening of the theme was my two big early contributions to the project. Well, right. And that makes a lot of sense with the title. Like, what the bleep is that? You want it to be, it could be anything, right? Any kind of weird thing you can imagine. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I mean, um, 
I, I thought, and it also, uh, in addition to uh, allowing the authors to write about whatever type of monster they want, um, uh, once we stripped the word out of the title, then it, it may it gave them that variety too, so that everybody could could come up with their own phrase. Like as Doug said, uh, uh, Des had a very uh, creative uh, take on that. Um, uh, probably the most uh, mo- most uh, complicated uh, phrasing <laughs> in, in the book, uh, if I recall correctly. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I enjoyed that too because I think one of the fun parts about reading the book, uh, you know. Uh, story after story, if you just read it all all together, um, is is finding out where in the story the phrase is going to come up and what sort of in, in what sort of context and what uh, and how what what sort of phrasing the author is going to use. So I think it adds a little bit of a little bit of a fun thing to the to the reading experience. Yeah. All right. Well, Doug. So you mentioned this Mike Mignola cover. So I just got to ask you, uh, what what the fuck is that thing? That is an answer that only can be provided by Mike Mignola. But I will. Did say, you talk? Did you talk with him about about um, it at all? I never actually had a chance to ask him what it was, but I do think it's very appropriate to the cover because you look at it and you say, "What in the world is that? What the hell is that?" And then you see the title, and well, one kind of complements the other. So you know, he pretty much gave us exactly what we were looking for for this kind of anthology. Right, so for listeners, it kind of looks to me like a broccoli monster made out of tentacles with the face of a demented version of Gumby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, so keep an eye out for that. But so, Des, yeah, we've mentioned that you uh, took a very creative approach to this What the Bleep Is That? Tell us about how you came up with your story. Um, Okay, so like Doug, I had seen the meme a few times when it was going around. So uh, when I first heard about the idea for the anthology, I remembered that, and I loved the idea right away. I thought it was really great. Um, but then when I actually like kind of sat down to start writing my story, I realized I didn't really have any good ideas, um, because the idea of saying what the bleep is that, I felt like it should be a pretty tangible monster, like definitely a real creature or some sort of horrible scene. and. The kind of stories I usually write are often like very subtle and ambiguous and there's not necessarily an actual monster. It might just be someone's sort of psychological breakdown or something like that. Um, but I wanted something where the characters could actually be like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so I thought about that for a while um, and kind of got some inspiration from Creepypasta, um, which I love. And after thinking about it, I realized that actually what scares me about the story that I wrote um, is how easy it is for humans to unleash horror on the world and each other, um, often without even trying, sometimes just because they're being selfish or they're being careless, or sometimes they actually have good, pure, noble reasons to do something, but it still ends up being an awful thing to do. Why don't so, you just ex- sorry, Des, why don't you just explain what creepypasta is for people who might not know? So creepypasta is sort of like internet folklore legends, sort of urban legends, but they are written on the internet and they're passed around and people sort of share them and build on them. Um the 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 creepypasta term comes from sort of a, a riff on copy paste because people wear copy pasting the stories and then making them embellishing them telling them their own way um 
but a lot of them have this quality, like something you would talk about around a campfire or tell at a sleepover to scare your friends. And I find it very disturbing at times. <laughs> I'm kind of disappointed that creepypasta isn't related to the flying spaghetti monster. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, that would be a, a wonderful monster to show up in a story that would make you say, like, what the bleep is that? Because, like, I mean, if you've seen, if you've seen, like, the illustrations of that thing, it's like, it's kind of horrifying to look at. Yeah. <laughs> also kind of funny. But, uh, yeah. Um, so as far as what actually happens in the story, um, it's actually kind of funny because, uh, it sort of is a good example of how long it takes to put a book together because I actually just celebrated, um, my second wedding anniversary. But when I was writing this story, I was just in the beginning stages of planning my wedding. Um, so it was a few years ago, but, um, one of the ideas that we had that we ended up not uh, following up on was having a Halloween wedding at a haunted hotel in uh, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. So since I didn't get to do that in real life, I decided I would uh, write the story about that instead. Um, and it ended up being a pretty fun thing to work with um, because I wanted it, I wanted the story to be kind of campy um, and kind of humorous at the beginning because um, that's kind of the idea I got from the title and the whole concept. So I wanted it to start out feeling lighthearted. Um, so my protagonist, uh, she's the sister of the groom at the wedding, and she isn't a big fan of the bride. So initially, she's just sort of focused on all these petty annoyances that come with uh, being at a wedding and all the family drama. And her brother's best man, who's kind of a douchebag, but she also kind of likes. So as they are distracted by all this wedding drama and by each other, this horrible thing is just slowly closing in around them. Right. And she kind of has to babysit her uh, brother's new wife's kid. Yes. Who is a source of immense problems. Yes. There's a lot of like evil kids in horror or problematic kids in horror. Seems to be a big theme. Yeah. Um, of course, and the protagonist doesn't even like kids, so she, you know, from the beginning, she's just supposed to be like, ah, oh, this little brat. But it turns out he actually does sort of have some evil going on. Yeah. And the ending of the story, not to, I won't spoil it, but the ending of the story is, I thought was very, very creepy and effective and, uh, yeah, Thank just you. gave me the creeps. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, okay, cool. How about John Lankin? You want to tell us about how you were inspired by this, uh, what the bleep concept? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I also saw the, the, I think it was probably on Facebook, I saw the meme, and I have to confess, no matter how many times I, I saw it, it always got, like, this, always provoked this terrific laugh out of me. There was just something about, about the whole Lovecraftian concept, you know, and people just saying, what is that? And, you know, even Stephen King is like, I have no idea what's <laughs> going on. I, for some reason, I'd still, I'm thinking about it now, and it still <laughs> makes me laugh. Um, so I, um, when the, when I was invited to the anthology, I was, I was thrilled. I thought, oh, this'll be, this'll be so easy. And I love monsters. I love to write about monsters. And, um, so I thought, okay, there you go. You know, and there are, uh, man, there were so many great monsters that are, well, what Stephen King calls, you know, the thing without a name, right? So I thought this is going to be easy, but then when I actually sat down to write the story, I, I just, I couldn't come up with a good monster story. At the same time, um, I, um, 
for whatever weird reason, and this may be because it was a, a few years ago, one or another of my high school reunions was coming up. I can't remember if it was 20 or 25. I think it was probably 20. And, um, and I had no desire to go to my 20th high school reunion because my 10th high school reunion had been such a letdown. Um, I had gone in there thinking it was going to be like every made-for-TV movie I'd ever seen where, you know, well, no matter what separated us 10 years ago, we're going to get together now and find out that we all have a lot more in common and our similarities outweigh our differences, and, you know, cliche after cliche, platitude after platitude. And, uh, and that was not the case. It was, it was high school 10 years later. And I found that discouraging. But perhaps because I was, I was thinking about that, um, it made me think that when I was in high school, maybe a junior uh, in high school, on Saturday Night Live, um, maybe this was Billy Crystal. I was trying to remember who did this. They, they did this, one of those uh, skits that, that just achieves a life of its own, um, where then Billy Crystal and somebody else came out and just pointed at something and just said, what the hell is that? And they just, that was all they did for, for, you know, it was probably just a couple of minutes. What the hell is that? What the hell is that? And, and they just, you know, played with different ways of, of saying that. And so there was one, uh, one friend of mine, um, who, uh, uh, was a senior. He did that and I joined in a couple of times. And we actually had one or two teachers who helped us out when one of the hallways, we just pointed at a spot and, and just, what the hell is that? People would just drift by and look at us and, um, so then suddenly I thought, oh, it would be kind of, it would be kind of cool to write a story for the, for the, what the, you know, the Gravelix is, is that anthology where, um, where the phrase actually functions in this, in this different way. And, and so it's not, you know, a monster. It's, it's a callback to this thing that happened in high school, but there would be a, ultimately that phrase would have an implication to, to the action of the story, which would be about a teacher um, and uh, the, the story of a teacher who'd had a relationship with a student, uh, which had not worked out particularly well for either one, um, and uh, what had happened to him afterwards when, uh, when he and the student, the mother of, of uh, his child now, parted ways um, and the lengths he would go to to try to get, uh, get that child back. Hmm. Are there any other autobiographical elements in this story? I mean, like the character shows up to this reunion and finds that no one really remembers him at all. Yeah, oh, that was absolutely my experience. When I went to my 10-year reunion, I had, um, uh, I, 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 <laughs> I walked into the, um, the, the, the bar that we were uh, having the first night of the reunion in, uh, and, uh, and that's, that's very, that is actually highly autobiographical. I just, I sat down at the bar and nobody knew who I was. I had, I'd gained some weight. Um, uh, my hair had gotten a little darker. I had a beard and a mustache. And so it was kind of fascinating in a way because, um, I, I think I had probably changed physically more profoundly than anybody else who was there. So I was able to look at all these people who were in essence themselves with just a few more lines in their faces. Maybe their hair was a little bit further back. And yet uh, they looked at me and they just looked right through me. So uh, so it was a fascinating little bit of, of people watching. But it seemed, you know, it's odd, isn't it, how life sometimes seems to become symbolic, right? You know, that, that it, it seemed to indicate how far I had, I had drifted from that time in, in my life. All right. Well, we'll never forget you here, John, just to reassure you about that. Dave, I will hold you to that promise. <laughs> I'll also add that when I was first reading John's story, 
And, you know, the characters are talking about the what the hell is that? And he mentioned it was an SNL skit. I actually stopped and said to myself, now, was John just making this up? Or is this actually an <laughs> SNL skit that I never saw? So when I was done with the story, I actually went to YouTube and I tracked down the story. I mean, the skit, I should say. And Steve Martin was one of the people that was in the skit since uh, John was trying to remember. Oh, wow. Yes. So, yeah, you can actually find that skit on YouTube. So, you know, that was in the 70s. So, like, what, 30 years later, he he brought the skit back. (laughs) I actually Googled the skit, too, because I was, like, trying to solve the puzzle of what it meant. And uh, it was actually just pretty straightforward. So, (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm just sort of curious, Doug. I mean, obviously, the intent of this is that people are going to be saying, what the bleep is that? Looking at some sort of weird monster or something, right? Did other people do what John Langan did here and do something different than that? Uh, We have one other story where it wasn't really a monster. Uh, off the top of my head, I could think of one other story where there wasn't really a monster. Uh, with uh, I think it was Simon R. Green. It, um, it was more of a mad scientist kind of story. So those are the two stories where that I can think of where there was no monster, which I think it's fine. You know, like we came up with the idea and we figured monsters, but it's a very broad theme. So the authors really had a lot of room to play because there were only really two stipulations other than the word count. It was give us a horror story and work in this phrase. And even in that one phrase, you can change, you know, that the Grolix to whatever word or words you want. So there was no guarantee it was going to be a monster. But, you know, I wasn't surprised, I would say, that most of the stories ended up as monsters. Or monster stories, I should say. Yeah, that's why that's why the subtitle is "Monstrous and the Macabre." It's uh, we had to throw the macabre in there because of John Langan and <laughs> Simon R. Green. Otherwise, it could have just been the monster anthology. <laughs> um, well, so so Des, like Doug paraphrased your thing, but you want to give us the direct quote? Well, it is it's something about Jesus Christ on a cracker, right? Um, I think it's what the fucking Christ on a cracker is that. <laughs> um. And uh, a, a, a nasty old granny says it. So imagine, <laughs> imagine like her voice is kind of creaking. Do you remember how, like when you came up with that or what, you know, how that led to the story? Um, well, I guess I was sort of thinking that um, I, I kind of thought my fellow authors would uh, be thinking of all these creative ways to say uh, what the bleep is that. So I was trying to come up with something that uh, would not be repeated. Um, but then when I actually read uh, a lot of the stories in the anthology, I, it was, uh, there was a lot of, you know, what the fuck is that? So <laughs> I think I maybe like went a little overboard in trying to <laughs> make mine stand out. Um, but that's fine. It, I got to kind of develop the character of the rude grandma just to uh, sort of deploy that line. And it's always fun to write a rude grandma. So. <laughs> See, John Joseph Adams, do you want to add anything about these fine stories that Des and John Langan uh, wrote for you? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, like, uh, with, with, you know, sort of giving John Lang a little bit of a hard time here, uh, not having a monster in his story, but I mean, you know, the thing is, like, an anthology like this, I think, um, it's nice to have the sort of change of pace story where, uh, you, you get into it and you're expecting a certain sort of thing to happen. And, um, as you get towards the end of it, you, 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 you know, you're sort of looking around for where it's going to come in. And then when it doesn't, uh, go the way you think it does, then it's like kind of a nice change of pace. Um, so yeah, I didn't see that as a problem at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, otherwise, uh, I mean, they're, they're two, they're two great stories that are in the book by, by John and, and Des. And, uh, um, you know, I was, I was just rereading them, uh, ahead of this podcast and it was uh, a real pleasure to revisit them. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really have anything else to add. All right. Well, so tell us, John, who are some of the other authors in the book and some of the more like what the, Weep sort of stories in the book? Uh, well, let's see. The other uh, names that ended up on the cover, just so I don't have to read the whole list of names, but uh, Jonathan Mayberry, Scott Segler, Shannon McGuire, Christopher Golden, uh, on Owa Mayella and Rachel Swirsky. They have a collaborative story. Um, Alan Dean Foster and Maria Devonna Headley. Um, just to, just to give two examples, uh, so two of the other, uh, two examples in the anthology are, uh, so Scott Sigler, Scott Sigler's story is called Those Goddamn Cookies. Um, and it's, uh, it's this, uh, very, uh, unusual sort of, um, story on a, on a, like a spaceship. And, uh, these, the, these two people are like, hunting all over the spaceship because they can smell the the smell of these cookies. Well, one of them smells cookies and one of them smells brownies and, and they're, they're both kind of going insane. Um, and there's this one crewman that they're looking for that they can't find who's the baker on the, on the ship. And, and, and they're just like looking all over for these goddamn cookies. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it's just really insane. It's just like everything like, uh, uh, there, there's a, there's a, like a pretty bizarre monster in that one. So uh, I think uh, that one's a fun one. I'm sorry, um, John, I'm going to have to correct you. I think it's actually those goddamn cookies. I know. I was trying to say it. I was trying to say, I was trying to say goddamn. Like, I don't know. It's, it's G A D D A M is how he spells it. Um, uh, which is actually, uh, so originally he had submitted the story is just called cookies. And we're like, uh, well, cookies is kind of a bland title. Could you spice it up a little bit? So he put the, those goddamn goes goddamn cookies in there. Um, um, and then, like, Shauna McGuire's story is called, uh, hashtag Connolly House, hashtag We Shouldn't Be Here. Um, and as you might guess from that, it's, uh, it's a, a, a story told in tweets. And, um, they're, so it's sort of about this, uh, this, this ghost hunting team. Like, they're, they're kind of like a reality show where they, you know, they go visit some haunted house. And, um, and so, but this is just like the, the story told from their Twitter feed as they're going on one of these expeditions. Like, they actually do have someone with a camera that's there, but it's just that, but, but what we're saying in the story is just the Twitter feed. Um, and so, uh, it's interesting because, like, you know, she sticks to the, the strict limitations of Twitter. And, and so you get just tweet by tweet and you have some replies. Uh, you have some of the team members talking to each other. You also have some, um, fans, uh, interacting with them. Um, but as they get further and further into the exploration of this house and things start getting weird and, and going wrong, um, there's a lot of interesting, fun things that happen with the, uh, with the story because of the format that like you're only able to see because of the format. And I don't want to say more to spoil it, but um, I, I really like, I, I really like what she did with it. And um, uh, like, it's it's an interesting story to talk about in terms in context of the anthology because um obviously like you know telling a story in a series of tweets it can kind of seem like kind of a gimmick um but then again like the whole concept of this anthology is kind of a gimmick right but the thing is it's like in both Shonen's case and both in the anthology as a whole, I feel like 
although it started that way, uh, we managed to make it transcend the gimmickness, the gimmickry of, of the idea, you know? And so, um, you know, although Shannon started in that place, she like, she really took it to somewhere else that made it, uh, you know, all worthwhile and it, and you, you know, just turned it into a real story, even though it, uh, you know, uses that, that framework. Um, so, you know, that story like legit scared the crap out of me. <laughs> it, yeah. I think it might be my favorite story in the book. It's really good. Yes, yeah, so see, John, art house gimmickry. It's how I think of this book. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a good <laughs> phrase for it. Um, but so, Des, you t- you've actually read the you read the whole book. I read most of it. Are there any other stories you want to highlight? Um, I really, I really liked um, Adam K. Castro's Framing Mortensen story, um, because it was just like so comically evil. How uh, the main character was just taking such delight and relish in uh, torturing his um, hapless victim and former enemy. Um, and I also really like it. It really kind of turned Lovecraftian in the end too, which was super awesome. Um, and it, it did sort of like go with the whole theme that we've been talking about where it's actually, it is scary and macabre and all that, but also just kind of having fun with it and enjoying the campiness of it. And I thought Maria uh, Devana Headley's story was really fantastic too. Her story, Little Widow, um, which combines dinosaurs and angels. I don't think I've seen that done before. <laughs> yeah, and a suicide cult. Yeah, yes. just to uh, just to jump in here. Um, so actually, if if anybody isn't sure if they want to get the anthology and you want to sample it, um, you can actually read Little Widow and um, Whose Drowned Face Sleeps by Anna Obamiliela and Rachel Swirsky. You can read both of those on Nightmare. Um, also, you can listen to them if you know if if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like podcasts. You can also listen to the podcast version, um, so you can sort of sample the anthology before you buy it. Although, I mean, obviously, you should go buy it. <laughs> well, in Fossil Heart, right? You can listen to that as well. Oh, you're right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Fossil Heart. Yeah, Fossil Heart by Amanda Downham. Yeah, you can also read and listen to that one, too. Yeah, I forgot about that. Thanks, yeah, Dave. Yeah, yeah, because I listen, cause they're all, those three are on the Nightmare podcast, so I listen to them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you can definitely go check this out. How about Doug? Uh, do you want to, like, highlight any of these stories in particular? Uh, sure. I mean, if there's a couple of stories to me that, you know, kind of stood out as defining what the bleep is that that we haven't already discussed, I think I would actually point to the bookend stories. That being the first and the last one. The first one is Mobility by Laird Barron. And it's about this guy who just does like a casual act of violence to a squirrel when he's a kid. And, you know, lots of kids, they'll do like unthinking things, you know, when they're very young that they don't realize how cruel it is, whether they're killing a bug, whether they're killing a bird or a squirrel. And then there's just kind of this mostly unseen horror that proceeds to torture him uh, when he's older from afar, and it basically treats him like the bug. And, you know, it's kind of a Lovecraftian vibe, and by the end, it seems very Lovecraftian to me, the way it ends. But, uh, you know, we got a wide range of stories with... Like, in terms of the tone, we had some that were fun, we had some that were really dark, we had some that, you know, were fun and then they became dark, and I think that's great, you know? But I thought Laird's was a good tone setter 
uh, for the opening of the book. Just to let you know, whatever else this is, this is a horror anthology. Because I think kind of like uh, John Joseph Adams was saying, you know, you see the title, you see this weird creature on the cover that you don't know what it is. It seems kind of quirky or campy, but I do think in the end, we transcended the gimmick. So, you know, I thought Laird's was a good one just to let the fans know this is a horror anthology. And then the final story... Actually, like, actually, Doug, let me jump in there because I want to, because the Laird Barron story for me was definitely like a what the bleep is that kind of story. <laughs> just the whole story for me. Okay. Um, and I know, John Langan, you uh, you know Laird well, right? Can you say like what was going through his sick, twisted mind when he was writing this story? Well, that I can, actually. Um, and um, I'm not sure if I should. Uh, but perhaps I'll just tell you guys, and I'm sure no one else will hear this uh, Oh, yeah, this just story. between us. Um, <laughs> just between us uh, and, and these microphones. Um, Laird and I are both good friends with Brian Evanson, uh, who's a fantastically talented writer. And um, a number of years ago, Brian contributed a story to uh, Ellen Datlow's Supernatural Noir, I think it was called The Detective of Dreams. And in this story, um, Brian has a, a character who uh, is blinded in one eye and wears an eye patch and becomes involved with ghosts, uh, trying to perceive ghosts. And he deafens himself in one ear in order to try to hear the ghosts better. So as I was reading the story, I thought, man, this sounds Laird is, is obviously has the eye patch, and he also lost his hearing in, in one ear several years ago. Uh, and I, I thought, this sounds an awful lot like Laird. But the story was dedicated to Michael Sisko. And I thought, is this just coincidental or what? But I thought, no, it, you know, it has to be Laird. And so uh, five years ago, something like that, Laird and I were at a, a reading in Providence. Um, and uh, Brian Evanson was teaching at Brown at the time, and, and so he came to the reading. And afterwards, uh, we all went out to dinner, and, and Laird uh, <laughs> sat down next to Brian. And Laird had decided at this point that that story pretty much it had. It was just the coincidence was too great. Evanson had to know what he was doing. And so, um, so while we were all having our, our waiting for our, our meal to come out to us, actually, no, our meal had come because everyone had their knives and their forks in their hands, and and. Um, Laird said to Brian, "So uh, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous, John, that uh, the fact that everyone had their knives and forks in their hands <laughs> is a relevant detail that you're setting up." Here. So well, well, you know, so so Laird said, um, "So uh, I understand you wrote a story about me," <laughs> and uh, and Brian suddenly got really nervous, you know, because Laird was just completely deadpan, and Brian said, "Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I, uh, gee, I hope that was okay." And Laird very deliberately put his cutlery down and turned to him and said, well, actually, Brian, actually, it wasn't. <laughs> and Evanson went, you know, just just ghost white. And then Laird laughed and said, no, it was fine. It was a great story. <laughs> but, he, but he said to me afterwards, he said, this calls for a response. <laughs> and so, so um, all I can say is that Brian wrote a book called Immobility. Um, and any resemblance uh, between the character in Laird's story, Mobility, and Brian Evanson is completely specious, and uh, Brian should not be contacting his lawyers anytime soon. <laughs> well, this character in Mobility is treated very, very badly, so I think Laird definitely got his revenge there. This fictional <laughs> character. 
Yeah, that's an interesting red herring, though, if you're writing a story about someone to dedicate it to some completely random other person to throw people off the well, scent. Well, you'll notice that you'll notice that Laird dedicated this story to Michael Cisco. <laughs> <laughs> so it all comes full circle. So it's right, and I can't wait to see. I really hope that Evanson picks up the gauntlet and does something new to Laird. You know, yeah. And then Michael Cisco should get in on the act. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, Cisco, he'll just do something to, like, William Burroughs or someone else. <laughs> See, Doug, you had another story you were going to mention? Uh, yeah, I was going to mention the last one, which is called Castle Leap by Alan Dean Foster. And this one takes place in Africa. And there are a couple of people that are, you know, just kind of tourists being tourists. And they're checking out Africa. And... Early on, their guide says to them that there's this castle where the walls weep at night. And they think it's just, like, some local superstition or whatever. And then, like, they start becoming more and more curious. And they start doing a little arm twisting to get there. And they finally force the guy to take them there. And it's just a slow build. And you're wondering the whole time... Where's the author taking us? And he really steeps you in the setting. Part of the reason being, as you find out at the very end, he had visited Africa and, you know, he saw a lot of these settings firsthand. So you feel like you're really there as you move along. And then you come to the castle and, you know, they're thinking there's certain kinds of treasures there. And I don't want to ruin it for everyone, but it turns out it's not at all what these characters were expecting and then they run into something horrific and it's so different than anything that i've encountered in my reading of dark fantasy horror the horrific that i thought that was a truly powerful uh what the bleep moment when you see what the creature for lack of a better term is Right, and I think it's so interesting, like you said, that Alan Dean Foster travels so much. He said, I saw him say once that he wants his epitaph to be Earth, been there, done that. Because <laughs> he's, uh, you know, been to so many countries and feels like you have to know everything there is to know about Earth if you're going to be trying to imagine what life on other planets and so on might be. But yeah, so this is a really novel setting for a, a horror story that's really I've never seen before. Yeah, you know, and uh, this this is one of those stories where, like Doug and I, I think we just were completely on the same page uh, about, like, yeah, oh yeah, no, we gotta we gotta put that at the end, you know, like that that's such a closer. That story is the closer for sure, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it's really just so emblematic of of the anthology. Like, like I, I think it it's the one that most like really makes you actually say what the bleep is that when you're reading it. It's like the the horror in it is really like out there. So uh, yeah, I felt like it was a really great closer. Hmm. All right, so I do want to move on to what the bleep kind of monster is in other books and movies and things. Do you guys have any any, any final thoughts about this anthology that you want to say before we move on? Um, I'll give you one, just uh, in case you're curious and you want to look up the book. Like, you know, we said we've been saying bleep, and then we explained it's really Grolix with symbols. But if you actually want to enter it in your computer and look up the book, it would be what the, and then the symbols are the number sign uh, followed by the at sign followed by an ampersand followed by a percentage and then the words is that 
So how did you decide which uh, which symbol was standing in for which letter? That's a good question. Uh, when John and I first learned uh, that these were uh, that these symbols like had a term called Grolix, um, like then we asked each other, okay, well that's pretty cool, but now is there an exact uh, way to you know use these symbols to represent a curse? And we looked online a little bit, and we really couldn't figure it out and then i said to john well you know we don't have to tip our hand but we could just ask and when in doubt go to twitter and john has a bigger following than i do on twitter so he kind of just asked hey how would you use this curse with the symbols and i think that's actually how we learned about the grolics and then somebody said well this is how i do it and they explained their their logic and we just kind of said yeah that works <laughs> And what was there any, what was the logic? Uh, I think like, like the number sign kind of like almost reminds you of an F and so on and so on. Like it's just the way they explained it. These symbols seem to correlate with those letters. And John and I were just kind of like, all right, close enough. Yeah, it was funny because, you know, in the course of talking about this episode and promoting it and so on, I had to really learn, <laughs> okay, it's, you know, pound sign at symbol ampersand percentage i got it down now but it's a, uh, it's a little bit tricky you know honestly i think i didn't actually learn what the order was until like the book was about to come out because i was <laughs> finally having to write it so many times i kept i kept having to just like open up one of my old documents that had it written down so that i would get it right so that's that's the downside to the title it's like it's, it's fun it's like when it's a it's an eye-grabbing title when you look at it but yeah no that is the downside for sure because like i mean if you try if you have to try to actually remember how to write it it's a problem um i often call it i often call it like wtf or like you know uh or, or just say what the fuck is that instead of trying to uh you know bleep it out <laughs> but um but you know when you're searching for it online it's it's, it's a potentially an issue yeah yeah all right, cool. So let's move on to these uh, what the bleep monsters and other books, movies and things. And so when I was describing the kind of things that I was sort of thinking about, the two examples I was using was John Carpenter's The Thing and the recent movie It Follows. And I just I loved It Follows so much. And it's such a weird monster that's unlike anything I've ever seen with these weird specific rules and characteristics. So I'm just curious if everyone else loves that movie as much as I do. But uh, how about John Langan? Did you see It Follows? What do you think of that? You know, I did, and and I I felt the same way. I was I was tremendously impressed with uh, with what the filmmakers were able to to do on on what looks like a very modest budget, but um, you know, a modest budget, but but not a cheap or cheesy film, and um, and yeah, and, and and also a film with with moments of of genuine horror, genuine, not just a, a lot of unease, obviously, um, but uh, there's there's one scene when the 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 chameleon like monster barges into to one character's room in the in the guise of this uh very tall man and, and it still I still when I think about that it still gives me chills. It was a, a, a wonderfully evocative scene and a wonderfully evocative movie. Um and I, I think part of what's what's fascinating about it is is it, it reaches back, um speaking personally, you know, one of the things I remember learning about when I was a kid was that monsters have rules. And the rules are often nonsensical. Why is Dracula afraid of garlic? Well, don't worry about it. He's afraid of garlic. You know, the, the, knowing the rule was more important than whatever the anthropological explanation for the rule was. And 
This movie reminded me of that in, in some ways. There were rules that this monster follows, and we we can figure out some of them. We're, we're able to figure out some of them. The protagonists are able to figure out some of them. Um, and then other things they don't know, and they have to try to, to, to piece together or, or learn through experimentation. But uh, yeah, no, I, I thought it was a very strong film. Yes, I guess I'll just say the rules basically are that you somehow you become the uh, focus of animosity of this monster by having sex with someone, and the focus of animosity gets passed from person to person. So if, if it's you, you have to have sex with someone and pass it to them to kind of get the pressure off you. And once you're the focus, this monster will walk just at a walking pace towards you. It always knows where you are and will walk towards you. And if it catches you, it will kill you. And it can appear as anyone. It can be somebody you know or a stranger or sort of like a sort of scary looking person or something like that. And uh, yeah, those are they're just rules there. I've never seen another monster that followed rules like that. The, the walking is like that is very weird. And I don't know. I don't know. Des, did you see It Follows? Do you have any thoughts on this movie? Yes, I did see it. And I, I really love it, too. I think it's uh, one of the best horror movies I've seen. Um, and that that scene that John just mentioned uh, with the very tall man coming up in the hallway into uh, the girl's bedroom is uh, really horrifying. That one really stood up to me, too. Um, actually, something I was just thinking about uh, is one of the things I really loved about It Follows is the atmosphere and how it's really creepy and unsettling. And you know what city you're in, but you can't really tell what season you're in or uh, what time period you're in, and it just creates this real feeling of unease that really supports um, the scary parts of the film. And I feel like maybe that's kind of underlying a lot of the movies and stories where there's a monster that is unfamiliar to us, um, or maybe uh, we haven't seen before, the rules around it aren't very clear, that there is also this very unsettling or terrifying atmosphere, and the atmosphere really kind of enforces the monster. Um, and I was thinking about that also with regards to the other movie that you had mentioned, um, The Thing, where there is The Thing is a monster that um, we don't really recognize. Um, we're not sure what's up with it. But then also the setting is really oppressive, and kind of reinforces the actual creature. Right, and so just in the thing, if people haven't seen it, basically it's uh, in the Antarctic, and there's some sort of alien monster that's been trapped in the ice, and it can shapeshift and also sort of, like, infect people. And uh, so you never know if you're talking to someone whether it's one of the, whether it's the thing or, or not. Uh, and so it's very paranoid. And we actually, we, we polled uh, contributors to this anthology about what their favorite, what the bleep type monsters were. And there's a scene in the thing where one of the things gets its head chopped off and then the head grows sort of spider legs and scuttles off. And there were a whole bunch of people who, who listed that as their favorite, what the bleep sort of moment. Um, I don't know, Doug, do you have anything you want to, you want to throw in at this point? Oh, I can think of a few. Um, one couple of them are Stephen King uh, stories. One of them, um, you might remember that movie, The Mist, where the whole time you're just wondering, you know, what is it? Because uh, these people are basically trapped, uh, I think, in a supermarket 
in the story and there's some, like there's this mist that they can't get past and there's some kind of creature or creatures in the mist that are killing them and they're like mutilating the the humans so that's a moment where you know it's a nameless horror that's it's a very obvious nameless horror um another one that occurred to me it was a short story and then they there was a movie where they adapted a few of Stephen King's short stories into like I guess this mini flicks you know like a little anthologized movie if you will and there was this one story called The Raft um where basically these college kids uh they come to a lake uh, and they swim out to the middle of the lake where there's just like this floating raft in place and while they're there like this oily slick substance like kind of starts floating across the lake over to them and one person touches it um which obviously if you're reading a stephen king story you know that's a <laughs> huge no-no but you know, the the oily slick substance basically consumes them and now the other three people are trapped on this raft uh with that thing circling trying to get to them and you know they're gradually uh as you might imagine picked off i won't tell you how it ends it ends differently in the movie versus the short story i've read both but you know something like that the whole time even though it really doesn't matter i think you're wondering well, what is that thing you know it's, it's just like almost like a living oil slick and you know th those are horror examples um I also thought of like a few that qualify as horrific moments where it wasn't really horror, like uh, in Clash of Kings, when Melisandre gives birth to the shadow baby. As I'm reading that, the whole time I'm just saying, what the bleep and bleep, what the bleep and bleep, what the bleep and bleep, because that's not supposed to happen. So I thought that... Yeah, it's pretty visceral on the TV show, too. Like when you actually see it, you know, not just imagine it by reading it. Yeah, Absolutely. So, I mean, sometimes these what the bleep moments can, you know, find their way into an epic fantasy. Or I always thought of the Shrike in uh, Dan Simmons' Hyperion Cantos as a what the bleep kind of creature, you know? It seems like something out of an Edgar Poe, uh, an Edgar Allan Poe nightmare. It's this eight-foot creature of spikes and chrome, and it has these abilities, but you don't really know what it is for a very long time, and you don't really don't know what its agenda is. So it's the Shrike, but what is the Shrike? So I thought that was a very good example. And then the one that just occurred to me while we were on the phone was the Monster and Stranger Things, that new Netflix series. Yeah. Yeah, Pet Pedalhead, right? People have been calling that. Uh, isn't it the Demogorgon? Yeah, the Demogorgon. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, well, yeah. they were called, the kids were calling it that. Um, you know, they were yeah. comparing to like, a, I guess they were putting in Dungeons and Dragons terms or something like that. And they called it the Demogorgon. Um, but, you know, you go a long part of the, it's, I think it's an eight-part series for season one, eight-part episodes. I think it's like not until what, like episode six or seven that you even get a really good look at this thing. So, you know. And, it, and you're definitely like, what the bleep is that? <laughs> exactly, because it's a very unusual creature. It's doesn't have really have a face, and it kind of seems almost plant-based, but then it's very predatory which you don't think of plants as being predatory too much outside of maybe the Venus flytrap. So, and it's humanoid while also being like plant-like with its head. So it was a very weird, different, dangerous kind of creature. And they really took their time 
building it up very methodically. So I thought that's a very good recent example. Uh, speaking of predatory, that just reminded me of uh, Predator, uh, the the final scene in Predator when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is facing off with the Predator, and he actually and the Predator takes its mask off and uh, and like they actually say to each other like "What the fuck are you?" Uh, so there you go, Doug. That could be our sequel anthology, like you know, where you have you have uh, the protagonist and antagonist encounter each other for the first time, and they have to say "What the fuck are you?" or, or whatever, uh, and then. <laughs> Well, it's interesting what you guys are saying about, you know, the Shrike and Predator and things, because uh, for research for this, I looked up lists. I just typed in a list of weirdest monster and things like that. And a disproportionately high number of them were from horror sci-fi hybrid movies as opposed to just straight horror movies. So I guess maybe when there's aliens involved, people feel more uh, liberated to make really weird looking monsters or something like that. I don't know. I know, John Lang, what do you think about that? Do you think there's something to that? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I was thinking that same thing that that in the original Alien movie, um, and this is if if you try to remember the first time that you that you see that movie, there's very much a, a it seems to me a succession of WTF of of you know as, as you go through that from the the face hugger um, to then the chest burster, and then each time you see the alien, um, even when it's reached what I guess we think of as a, of its uh, as its mature form. Um, you know, it opens its mouth and that second set of jaws pop out. Like the, the thing seems completely unstable, even at the, the very end of the movie when we think that Ripley is safe. When the alien uncoils, there's a, a moment when it, when it sort of detaches itself from the surrounding, uh, spaceship when it's, it's camouflaged. It looks like part of the spaceship. And, and so, you know, that's a movie that, that just keeps you saying, oh, you know, what next? What is, what is going to happen next? At this point, I think we've, we're maybe past that in a, in a way, you know, we, as I say, the creature was kind of solidified in our, in our minds, but that, that original film really makes of it just this constantly developing kind of, of thing. And, um, and I don't know if it has something to do with, um, you know, obviously the director wants to scare you, right? I mean, that's the sort of, you know, but, but I also think that, that, that there's maybe an attempt to, to demonstrate that, that an alien form of life might be truly alien. You know, that, that it, that it might go through a life cycle that is radically different from what we go through as, as human beings. Um, and, and when we see that, when we see that, uh, on, on screen, yeah, it, it, if done right, it can be very disturbing. Well, I mean, speaking of life cycles, because there does seem to be kind of a life cycle of horror monsters, right, where it starts out and you don't know how they work and they're scary. And then it gets, there's a couple movies or whatever, and then you, now you do know how they work and there's kind of this familiar uh, affection for them and recognition. And then the story starts, starts being told from their point of view and now it's sympathetic and then you start having sex with them. And it's sort of this... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this this sort of natural life cycle. Well, not the xenomorph. I hope that that would uh, you know you shouldn't do that. That's pretty dangerous. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean it's it's it it hasn't quite or has it gotten there? I was I was thinking you know the big, I think the Lovecraftian monsters are are you know well obviously, uh, but but they're uh, in the ascendancy right now, and and I'm I'm just thinking about zombies though because I guess zombies are sort of tailing off, but they're still. Uh, it seems to me they're still hanging in there a little bit. And I, I wonder, 
how many zombie narratives have there been? I guess there have been a couple where, where we see things from the zombie's point of view. I don't know if we've gotten, except for, I think, Amelia Beamer's novel, The Loving Dead, is, is an attempt at writing a sort of erotic or, or sexually charged zombie novel. Um, I, I'm not aware of any others, but I have to be honest, it's not something I go out and actively try to find. No, there's a whole genre, John. you gotta, you got to <laughs> expand your horizons. No, but I mean, there's... really there is that show, I Zombie, uh, that is from the zombie girl's oh, perspective. Okay, yeah. And I kind of like that show yeah. a lot. Yeah, I mean, she's barely a zombie, really. I mean, she's she's clearly undead. I mean, but, she does eat you know. brains, like, every day. But... Yeah. But she's not like a mindless zombie. Like, you know, you know, when you say when you say zombie, you, you kind of think like there are oh, these yeah, mindless she's creatures, a smart you know. Yeah. But like, uh, actually, like the romance is a huge part of the plot because uh, one of the major questions is, you know, if you have sex with someone, you'll infect them with zombieism. So you can only have romantic relationships with other zombies um, unless you want to inflict being a zombie on your love. All right, I don't want to talk too much about zombies because that is a named monster, and so it falls outside our purview. But I just, I will just mention, John Langan, that there's this movie Dead Girl where it's like these kids find this zombie girl kind of chained up in a warehouse or something and use her for sexual purposes. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of things out there. Yeah, that's pretty disturbing. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for <laughs> ruining my <laughs> Um, I mean, just another science fiction mon- um. Like WTF monster I wanted to mention was the monster in Cloverfield, which is, first of all, is a really bizarre looking thing. But then I think it's really interesting how they never, you never really get a good look at it through the whole movie. And so every time you see it, you're just like, what the, what is that thing? You know? And I think that that's really important for, for, for a kind of, you know, a feature length movie where you're trying to maintain that sense of WTF to just, you never really see what the thing is, maybe until the end. But, uh, but yeah, let's see. Doug, do you want to? Do you have? Do you have anything you want to jump in here with? Uh, just I guess another creature that f- kind of fits the mold. This is one of the ones that uh, our contributors mentioned when John pulled them. Is the creature at the dinner table from Pan's Labyrinth? Uh, where yeah. It. I think it had no eyes, but then when you see its palms, it had eyes, and it's basically in a this slumber unless you eat some food off the table and you know it can only follow you if it holds up its hand so that the eyes and its palms can see you and it's long and it's lanky and it wants to eat you and it eats one of the fairies that was a very cre- creepy kind of creature that makes you say wtf i mean do you want to say like john lankin you touched on this a little bit earlier but the the r- importance of rules for horror monsters and scariness do you is there like a like a curve or something for how many rules makes a monster scary? Like like if <laughs> if there's no rules at all, it's not scary, and if you know all the rules, it's not scary. And you gotta know you gotta sort of know the rules, but not have them all be sure about them or something. Yeah, I I mean I um I think if something is completely unknowable or uh, you know uh, completely um, unstoppable or 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 whatever unapproachable um maybe that works in limited ways or, or or you know maybe that can work as you sort of climactic uh monster at the end of your story if that's if you want to have a, a as it were a trap story where you know it just snaps shut on the reader and then they all died and the monster ate the earth or something like that but i i think if um if you you don't want that i i, I think the thing is those kinds of stories can become curiously um flat and, and curiously um 
unsuspenseful because if if there's no hope against the monster, well, okay. Um, I, I think that when you have some possibility of the rules, I guess, um, of, of learning, like, and it follows, right, that, that, that there seems to be some way that we can at least put this thing off. But the problem is that, that in order to, to put this thing, to, to give yourself distance from this thing, you have to give it to somebody else, which is morally, obviously, problematic. And then when they die, if the thing gets them, it comes back to you. So that's only a temporary solution. And, you know, part of what's interesting about that movie is their attempt at the end to try to figure out how do we kill this thing? How, is there a way that we can kill this thing? I think, you know, obviously the other end, if you know exactly how to kill the monster and it's, it's well, all we have to do is, is uh, you know, X, Y, and Z, that can also make for a, a less suspenseful narrative. So, yeah, maybe... Uh, uh, you may be right, Dave. Well, actually, let me give you, John, a specific example, because I really found this to be the case with Nightmare on Elm Street, which I thought had a, was, was, was really good and had, you know, rules for how Freddy Krueger operates. And, you know, if you're awake, he can't get you and so on. And then at the very end, there's like this like weird Freddy car and it turns out you're fucked no matter what. And uh, the, the the movie lost all of its power for me at that moment because it was just kind of like, like you're saying, like, oh, well, Freddy can get you no matter what. Uh, I just don't care anymore. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I, I like the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but I do think that the end is a cheat. The end is the is the filmmakers wanting to make you jump just one more time, but um, it, it hasn't played fair with its own internal logic. And I think that's always for for any kind of story. I feel if you're going to break the the internal logic of the story, there has to be a really compelling and and you know kind of brilliant reason for you to do that. And I I don't think there is. I think that's just a a cheap jump scare kind of an ending. Yeah. See, Des, is there anything you want to add here? Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about what you guys are talking about. And I guess I kind of have to disagree a little bit because I actually do like the kind of horror where there's, it's just this unknowable, implacable thing that's just closing in on you and there's actually nothing you can do about it. Um, like the story that Doug mentioned uh, where there's the oil slick on the pond, like, I would say that's an example. Because um, you kind of know from the beginning how it's going to end. And there doesn't really seem to be anything they can do to fight it. They just put up this very sort of token resistance. And I really enjoyed that story. I mean, it kind of traumatized me for life. Um, <laughs> but it's very memorable to me. And I like reading a story like that where I'm afraid of what's going to happen. And I know it's going to be bad, but I just can't stop reading it. Um, well, I, I, I love that story, too. I totally agree with that. But to me, there's a difference between these characters in this situation really stand no chance against this monster versus this monster doesn't follow rules. Uh -huh. I mean, in that story, the monster can't get them if they're on the raft. That's a rule that's, yeah, that's established. True. So I was thinking, like, along with the oil slick monster, I feel like a very similar monster. It's hardly even a monster, but the ruins, um, there's, I can't remember the author's name, but there's this book where... Oh, uh, these... Scott, Scott Smith, right? S say that again? Uh, is it Scott Smith? Maybe. That sounds familiar. These, you know, these, uh, these young college students, they go to, they, they go to visit these ruins, I think somewhere in, maybe in rural Mexico. Um, and then they sort of get trapped on this hill where there's this vine and it's just like this, malicious vine that is actually i guess probably some sort of alien creature um and 
it's the same kind of thing where they're trapped. And yeah, you're right. The vine actually does obey rules because it can only get people who are um, on this hill with it. But then once they have fallen into that trap of those rules, uh, you kind of know how it's going to end. But I just I found that so scary and so suspenseful, just reading and reading and dreading like what was going to happen. And in, in part, it works because the characters are not very likable. So you kind of just enjoy seeing the bad stuff hmm. happen to them at the same time that you're afraid. Um, but I would also put that story up there as one of the most memorable, scary stories I've ever read. Let me throw in a couple um, like suggestions we got. So, so our listener Zach Chapman says, even though I'm not a fan of the movie, Pumpkinhead has the weird "What the bleep is that?" monster. I'd also throw some love at the Blob. The '50s version is a classic, and the '80s remake terrified me as a kid. And the creature from the Black Lagoon. And he also says the alien slugs in Slither are also very Carpenter-esque. And a couple of people mentioned Slither, or oh no, the Splinter is a different movie, I guess. Uh, it looks like a bunch of other people mentioned Splinter. I don't know if uh, does anyone have anything they want to throw in about any of those. I saw Slither, the the one with the slug movie, as a kid, and it freaked me out, man. It's just like, <laughs> whoa, that's all it takes. Just, just gets in your, just shoot the slug out of your mouth, and it goes in your mouth, and you're done. That's not fair, man. That's not cool. Uh, that <laughs> that was one of the first horror movies I saw as a kid, and it freaked me out. And I hadn't thought about Slither in years. So when I saw that, yeah, that that was kind of a a WTF one when I saw that as a suggestion. And they kind of did their little Hollywood twist at the end, just like Nightmare on Elm Street, where, you know, you beat all the slither creatures, you beat the slugs, and then, like, the, the female protagonist, uh, I think she was, like, in high school, and there was a male protagonist, and so that was the love interest. She, she, I remember she kneels down to pet a dog. And all of a sudden, it's like one of the slugs shoots out of the dog's mouth. And this is the first time you even know that an animal could be infested, too. So that's like just in general, something that Hollywood really annoys you with. They always feel the need to put that final twist at the end of a horror movie. When I say always, I'm, at, I'm actually obviously exaggerating. But they do it so often that you almost expect it. And I kind of agree it. It really ruins not just like Nightmare on Elm Street, the potency of that movie, but the potency of a lot of these movies. It's just like, come on, just let the story be the story. You don't have to give us this final twist at the end that's completely needless. How about John Joseph Adams? You want to throw anything in here? Uh, well, I have actually not seen any of those movies that you named, but um, one of the things I was going to, that I was sort of thinking about um, is uh, while it doesn't have unnamed. Uh, horrors because uh, it's a video game, but uh, the Fallout series actually has a bunch of like WTF stuff in it. Like uh, there's the death claws and the super mutants and stuff like that, where like you'll just be walking around and, and get ambushed by like these horrible monsters that you, you know, maybe like when you've seen them for the first time, it's really scary, but then also, you know, they're just scary even anytime they pop up. So, so, so um, the death, death claws, is that like an evil Santa Claus or? <laughs> No, no, death claw, like singular is death claw. So it's it's just it's just like it's like a giant it's just like a giant um monster that has like these big vicious claws and um like I don't know they're probably like twenty feet tall or something like that and so uh yeah I don't know what you would compare them to but uh, you know they um yeah I don't know it's kind of hard to imagine what to compare them no, to. No, well, that's good that that, that makes them perfect for this. Panel. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. So um so yeah I mean that that's one thing that came to mind um. 
Uh, unfortunately, like I said, I haven't uh, haven't seen those movies, so I can comment on those. But oh, well, how about Des? Do you want to comment on any of those or anything else you want to mention? I don't think I've seen any of those either. <laughs> yeah, some of these are pretty obscure. Actually, I, I had to. Um, I was thinking about instituting a rule for this panel that it had to be both a WTF monster and the movie had to be good, because if you uh, <laughs> if you're allowed to include bad movies, there's just so many movies with like what WTF <laughs> stuff going on in them. Oh, like but, Sharknado, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that kind of thing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there's just like 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 some of these lists I was talking about of the weirdest movie monsters and things. They're just these like super cheesy B movie things. Um, that like I I have never seen and I don't know if they're really worth watching. Um, and how about John Langan? Do you have any uh, any other kind of things you yeah, want to mention? I've seen. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, both. Um, Splinter is is not bad. It's it's a kind of tense little B movie. Um, and uh, with with a very small cast. Um, and um, what's interesting to me about about Splinter and and Slither is that they're very much in faction movies. And um, that seems to me something that you you've seen a lot more of. Um, you know, the 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 creature that infiltrates your body in some way and then makes you monstrous. And you know, in in some ways, I guess it seems to me like like it's an updating of of the curse trope. You know, whether you're turned into a vampire or a werewolf or or whatever. You know, now you're you're infected. Um, and and that makes you you know whatever the 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 source of the infection is whether it's something that's terrestrial or something that sprang out of a lab or something that came here on a on a meteorite there is a, a kind of sort of i don't know sociologically speaking kind of fascinating fear of infection that that these things seem to to represent um, and I will declare myself, I'm a big sucker for that remake of The Blob from the 80s. Um, uh, yeah, I went to see that in the theaters and was absolutely terrified. Um, because I, I, the, the, the original had scared me when it was on the 430 movie, uh, you know, <laughs> when I was a, a kid, but, but it is, it's all, you know, they sort of pour jello across a, 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 a photograph of, of a building and like, oh, the blob is enveloping that building. Whereas the the effects for for whatever it was the late eighties early nineties, um, the effects on the the remake were comparatively speaking really good. And this thing was this thing was fast. It could it could uh, pop out of the sink and zap you with a pseudopod. And and I remember finding that surprisingly effective. See, I don't think I've ever actually seen that. So where does the blob come from? Ah, uh, it's it's it shows up on a meteor, as as yeah. I recall. Yeah, I got to watch out for those meteors. Well, I mean, when you were talking about the, um, you know, the infection, I mean, people also mentioned um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's sort of a similar thing, where, and sort of similar to the John Carpenter's The Thing, too, this idea that the the monster isn't something that you look at and is weird, but it's just anyone around you could be the monster. There was actually a Philip K. Dick story from the 1950s that preceded all of these called The Father Thing where it's told through the perspective of, I don't know, like an eight- or a nine-year-old boy, and just there's some alien creature or some force or whatever it is that has inhabited the kid's father, looks just like his father, but he knows it's not his father, and it was incredibly creepy, which is kind of interesting because you don't always think of Philip K. Dick uh, or... Forget always. You normally don't think of Philip K. Dick as 
writing horror or spooky. You know, you think science fiction, certainly you think weird. And he can create his own WTF moments just with how weird he can be with some of his ideas. But this one was particularly creepy. And it kind of almost set the template for a lot of these uh, host-snatching movies and stories that followed. Oh, hey, so I thought of something to mention. Um, it's uh, it's probably, like, it seems to be a movie that only I like, and I'm, uh, I apologize again for inflicting this on you, uh, Dave, Doug, and Des back in the day, but there's <laughs> this movie called Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, which I really love. Like, I, I just honestly love this movie, and seems like nobody else likes it, but, um, you know, it was, you know, there was a Tales from the Crypt TV series that was on HBO for years, and then uh, it ended, and then they eventually, they made a couple of movies, and this was the first one. Um and, you know, so it's kind of a B movie, but like, I mean, well, definitely a B movie, but it, it it's a B movie, but it, it takes itself seriously enough that I like really love like the mythology and everything that happens in this movie. But there's this one scene where there's like, um, there's this head demon guy and like he, uh, he cuts himself so that he starts bleeding and he starts throwing his blood around on the ground. Um, and, uh, and all these demons start bubbling up from the ground and, uh, <laughs> and they're just like really gross and, uh, uh, and one of my favorite scenes is like, you know, they're sort of, uh, they sort of have like this, um, placenta on top of them as they're bubbling up out of the ground, you know, and so like, he just like squats down next to one and like pulls it off their head and like kisses it on the head, even though it's like this gross demon thing. Um, and so like, I don't know, like that, so that was one of those WTF moments for me when I was watching that. But, um, also there's a couple other, um, moments in the movie, like where, uh, there's like this little boy that gets, uh, you know, um, taken over by the demon and, uh, uh, he turns into this horrible, horrible monster. Um, and, and there's a couple other things like that. And there, right, John, I'm sorry. I'm calling foul on that one because a demon is a named monster. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever. Uh, I mean, it's it just, it's just, they're just a demon for, for lack of anything else to call them. I mean, they're all, they're all, all of the things in this movie are like, like unique monsters. I think, I mean, they're not like, it's not like it's a vampire. It's not like it's a zombie. You know what I mean? It's a, uh, they're, they're, they're randomly created creatures that we haven't seen before. Uh, so, you know, for whatever, for whatever it's worth. <laughs> I know, like I said, I'm the only one that likes it anyway. Oh, so. John, that movie was so bad, I blocked out the very <laughs> fact that I had seen it with you. Yeah, I literally have no memory of that. So either I wasn't there <laughs> or I just blocked out the memory. Yeah, too. I don't think I don't think you actually I don't think that actually happened. Oh, no, uh... it happened. <laughs> he, he opened the door in my mind, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I don't know I, if Des was there, but we definitely did it for movie night one day. It's, I don't remember. I, I mean, you've mentioned it on, on this podcast many times before, but I, I didn't remember that I'd ever actually seen it. Well, we'll have to make you watch it again. <laughs> don't do it, Dave. It's a trap. <laughs> uh, I'll just mention, I, I, these are all pretty obscure, but so uh, Jonathan Mayberry recommends The Flying Head from Bride of Reanimator. Uh, Tim Pratt says Absentia, a very weird, creepy monster, barely even glimpsed, really chilling movie. Uh, let's see, we've mentioned all these. Alan Dean Foster says, for me, it's always been the monster from the id from Forbidden Planet. Um, and then Grady, of course, Grady Hendrix has some super obscure things. Uh, from Beyond has great Lovecrafty monsters, but I think the Russian film V.I.Y. gets the award for bestest of all time monsters. So, uh, I, I, has anyone seen any of those? I guess Forbidden Planet. What a surprise that Grady came up with obscure recommendations. <laughs> I mean, Forbidden Planet, I guess, isn't super obscure, but I don't know. Any, uh, John Langan, any thoughts on any of that stuff? Uh, you know, um, 
From beyond, I uh, um, I guess I'll just have to give that one to Grady. Um, it uh, it may be his own uh, uh, demon knight, you know. I, I do think what's interesting about about Forbidden Planet, of course, is is that the the monster is 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 not seen for so much of it. You know, I, I mean, and I think that's something. Um, uh, I think it was actually I think it's in Stephen King's Dance Macabre. He, he talks about how you know you can evoke terror in a reader or a, a, a viewer by keeping the the monster off screen for as much time as as you possibly can. Um, and then the, the question, of course, is always, do you, what, what do you show the, the, the viewer? What do you show the reader? Um, and, you know, King makes the argument that, that when you scream, when you see whatever it is, you know, it's undoubtedly maybe with horror, but there's also some relief because it's never as bad as what you thought it was going to be. You know, whatever you were afraid of, that's always, you know, the, the thing that's under your bed, the thing that's in your closet, the thing that rattles around in your garage, whatever, you know, that's the thing that, that you're putting into that, into the space that those kinds of, of films or, or books create. And, um, you know, a lot of the best ones just run with that as, 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 as far as they can and as long as they can, I think. Is it frustrating, John Langan, as a horror writer that, as we're saying, the monsters are scarier if you haven't seen them before, but there's so many monsters have been invented. It must be hard to come up with things that are, are scary, right? Because there's just so many, like anything you can think of has been done before. No, I, honestly, um, I I think it, it has more to do with, do you care about the characters? Um, I Because I, I think in, in, in a lot of the movies that we're talking about, um, at this point in, in my life, right, you know, the, the Blob remake is not really going to scare me that much. It scared me when I was a kid and I hadn't watched a lot of horror movies and it was, you know, sort of brand new. But at this point in my life, um, I'm probably not going to find it, as cool as I think it is, I'm probably not going to find it that frightening. What I'm going to find frightening is a, a book or a, or a film that really engages me in the characters and really makes me, you know, like say It Follows does. Um, or the thing for that matter, you know, I, I, uh, it's not just because I have a huge man crush on Kurt Russell, but, you know, I, I love the characters in that movie. I, 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 they're, they're this, you know, whatever, lovable bunch of research scientists. How often has that been said? And, um, it, uh, so, so when things start to go south for them, that really matters. Um, and, and I think that that, um, I, I think you could take the 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 most cliched, the most hackneyed monster, whatever it is, whether it's a, I don't know if that would be a vampire at this point, because they certainly seem to have been done to death. But you could take that and you could I I think make that as frightening to a reader a, as ever, if the if it's if it's a vividly realized world and and a vividly realized set of characters who are threatened by this thing and and who then you know, also have to make some really maybe difficult choices because of, of, uh, because of the monster, because of what they're encountering. I guess another weird issue that occurs to me with the monster like It Follows is if this is a thing that exists, how come there is no, how come it's nameless? How come it hasn't been cataloged and observed throughout history, right? I guess it could have wandered in from some other dimension or something, but... Um, could be a, yeah, could be a I, pretty recent development. Yeah, I guess they're like toxic ooze created the It Follows monster or something like that. 
Well, just really with the chain of events of how many people were uh, getting infected with it and dying, doesn't seem like the human race could really survive very long once the It Follows monster was in the picture. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I also think that there's, there's, um, you know, one of the things about the movie, right, is that um, nobody talks to their parents. Right? I, I mean, not really. Nobody says, Mom, Dad, <laughs> I had some risky sex with someone I just met, and now there's a monster following me. And and one of the things I think that the film, you know, kind of encodes is is adolescent anxiety um, over sexuality, right? I mean, that's to state the obvious. But but it, it also, I, I think part of its power depends on the fact that, that kids don't tell their parents when they're having sex, I, I think by and large. Um, and the problems that they have... Um, whether, you know, emotional or they have an STD or there's a monster following them, they think they can solve themselves and, and deal with themselves. So, you know, from that standpoint, the monster could have been around for a long time because I don't think kids not talking to their parents about sex is a new development. Right. And, and it, well, and if it was an adult and they had a, you know, reasonably ba reasonable bank account, they could just keep uh, traveling around, you know, as long as you're traveling faster than somebody can walk. You're in pretty good shape, right? But that would make a kind of a boring movie. You know, if someone's just like flying back and forth across the country, estimating how long it would take the monster to walk, say, three quarters of the way across the country and then fly back, you know? You know, you're saying that, but like, I know that's like, it's funny, but I'm thinking that could be a super cool movie, although it would have to be done by a really brilliant actor. It would have to just be a study in obsessiveness where you're never quite sure, <laughs> maybe until... Yeah late into the movie what you know someone who's just relentlessly working these calculations and is oh mr or, or ms jones it's great to see you again you know they're recognized by the um by the uh, the flight attendants uh on <laughs> whatever american flight they constantly take and and you know it's it's only at a certain point that you realize that this insane behavior um is predicated on the fact that they're being stalked by this terrible monster yeah no the, I, I okay yeah no i agree that would act that would actually be pretty cool. Um, all right, so we're pretty much out of time for this episode. So uh, I think I'm going to give John and Doug a little final word here. Any uh, any final thoughts on this whole experience of uh, putting together this anthology and exploring the phenomenon of what the bleep is that sorts of stories? Uh, all I can say is that I'm really grateful it came to fruition because the original idea came to me all the way back in 2012. And I thought that as far as anthologies go, it was a bit outside of the box. But, you know, once I realized, wow, people would be receptive to this, I really believed in it. I really wanted it to happen. And I think publishing-wise, it's my project that I'm most proud of to date. So, you know, I thank John for coming on board and helping make it better. And I thank every last contributor for delivering their stories and helping shape it. I thank Mike Bignola for, you know, putting that cherry on the ice cream sundae with an original illustration. And Dave, of course, I thank you for having us on. Oh, you're welcome, Doug. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and I, I just uh, echo a lot of Doug's sentiments there, but uh, uh, otherwise I'd say if anybody wants to learn more about the anthology, just go to johnjosephadams.com slash WTF. Um, you, we won't make you um, try to remember how to spell the Grawlix, so just go to, you know, go to that URL and you can find out all the information about it and where to buy it and all that kind of stuff. 
All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Douglas Cohen, John Langan, and Desirina Boscovich. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dave. Yeah, always good to be here. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Douglas Cohen, John Langan, and Desirina Boscovich for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a huge thank you to Gary Flood, Jillian Clark, Evan Geller, and Roderick Mitchell, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I'd also like to give a special thank you to Trevor Nemeth, who just increased his Patreon pledge to an amazing $5 per episode. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank author Robert Rapino for sponsoring today's show. Learn more about his Red Sphinx series over at robertrapino.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.